Welcome to Views from the World Tree. This week, in part one of a two-part series, we bid adieu, adieu, Alfeder saying goodbye to city and civilization as we discuss how to plan, pack for, travel to, and clean up after your camping trip. And now, on with the show. Oh yes, I see. Good news, everyone! To you and you and you. <laughs> Glad you got the reference. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I was trying not to sing it when you were introducing it. <laughs> uh, news this week. Uh, as far as myself, reading. Have you ever heard of the book, uh, The Naming, by Alison Krogan, by chance? I have not. So this is a book that I discovered um, probably around the time that the seventh Harry Potter came out. I picked it up at the midnight release. Yes, I am one of those nerds. Sorry. <laughs> Let the hate flow through you. You can uh, send your hate mail to our to our email address, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, <laughs> um, she wrote a series of books uh, called The Singing Trilogy, I think it was. And it's high fantasy, kind of along the Tolkien realm, that follows a young slave girl as she escapes slavery and discovers that she holds, like, in her blood, uh, the lost magic of a certain bardic school. And in her world, the bards use song and poetry to... to um, influence the elements to create magics and so like the bards are the magicians and so there's a classic high fantasy there's an evil that's rising in the world and and they have to fight it and she's kind of a an unknown being in this who turns out to be the chosen one type of thing it, it's very um hero's journey uh kind of your mm -hmm. classic mythology type of thing but it's a really well written book uh the author herself is a uh, a quasi successful uh, poet, and so the language and the way she uses the language to explain what's happening in the book is phenomenal. It's probably one of my favorite series. It's a little long winded at times, but the language and everything just makes it worth it. So, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. I feel like I just hijacked the podcast and turned it into book talk, but <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. Very good book. I highly recommend it. Uh, watching 14 peaks on Netflix. Everybody was raving about it when it came out. Have you seen this one yet? Um, I have not. I'll be honest. I may have heard of it, but if I have, I forgot about the name of it. So, Okay another one of those like if you love the outdoors like mountaineering at all i'm i'm too scared to mountaineer myself like the idea of climbing up mount everest in the middle of a snowstorm just to stand on top of the world for like 20 minutes before i block out does not sound fun to me but there is like this pool there is this allure right um yeah for sure so I, I picked up or I downloaded this movie. I was on a flight last weekend. And so I wanted something to watch. And I remember hearing about it. It follows a young Nepalese guy uh, by the name of Nims Dai Purja. Mm -hmm. And um, the goal of a lot of mountaineers uh, is to conquer the 14 tallest peaks in the world. So there's the, the ones uh, in Nepal, there's, uh, can't remember them all, Everest being the most famous. Then you've got the Pakistani peaks and the Chinese Tibetan peaks. Um, so all in the Himalayas, the 14 tallest mountains in the world. And before him, the person that kind of set the bar was a mountaineer. Um, I can't remember his name, but he did it in about seven years. It took him to conquer all 14 peaks. 
Uh, Nimsdai conquered them in seven months. Wow. Um, and it kind of follows his journey. And one of the the strangest things that I've I saw, um, the first mountain that he did, uh, Annapurna, on I think Annapurna, uh, as he was coming down, or at, when he made it back down to below the eight thousand meter mark and was able to breathe without aided oxygen, uh, they found that somebody had been from a different climbing group had stayed up in the mountains overnight, didn't make it back down to base camp. And so he led this extraction effort to get this stranded hiker off the mountain. And like, he didn't just do it there. He did it in Everest. He did it at K2. He did it everywhere. Like if there was a problem on the mountain, he did it. So his first mountain that he summited he kind of summoned it twice to make sure that this person survived. And I just think like it takes a special kind of person, but this movie was just phenomenal, like adrenaline pumping, exciting. <laughs> yeah, I'll have know. to check that one out. Um, yeah. I went on to his, went on to his Instagram and I guess his next, um, his next record attempt is to um, he's going to climb Everest, do the fastest summit of Everest without the aid of uh, oxygen. So that's his next, uh, his next accomplish is to go from camp four to the summit and back without oxygen. Wow. That's yeah. Talking about an adrenaline junkie. A little bit. Yeah. little background for him. He was one of the first Nepalese uh, men to be accepted into the uh, Royal Special Forces of Britain. So oh. it takes a special type of person to go <laughs> special forces into mountaineering, into like extreme mountaineering like he does. Yeah, for sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So that's what I watched. That's what I read. And then uh, kind of the last little bit as we were talking about um, the occult and stuff, I saw a, uh, an article uh, that they, during the Notre Dame remodel or rebuild, they discovered a sarcophagus from the 14th century, perfectly preserved that they were going to open. <laughs> and um, I, I understand that they're doing it for like, anthropological archaeological reasons but i'm just going man it's like curse the mummy like this this thing's a vampire there's a reason why it was buried on holy ground like they're messing with <laughs> with evil you know uh, wouldn't surprise me with everything that's uh, been going on in the world lately but it's 2022 we, i mean we, we need, need a another, new crisis uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I just threw that in there because I thought it was kind of funny. Nice. So, anyway, sorry, I feel like I went really fast through mine. Uh, what's your <laughs> week look like? It's all good. Um, <clears throat> so I'm still kind of on the tail end of a cold, so uh, I, I apologize in advance. I will try to cut out all of the uh, the coughs and stuff in, in post, but if I miss some, uh, some I apologize. Um. <clears throat> So for me, I have been reading a couple of books. I picked one up called Rooted, Rooted, I guess, if you know, you're know you not from this area of the country and you actually pronounce your T's. Um, and it's subtitled Life at the Crossroads of Science, Nature, and Spirit. Um, it was recommended to me by Amazon's little like Kindle service. I forget what it's called, but. Um, it looked really interesting, um, so I went ahead and actually purchased it. And I'll be honest, I got through the introduction, and it definitely was really intriguing. I just um, got busy and haven't really made it past then. It's going to be my new back porch reading um, when I'm sitting outside. Um, so I'll kind of table that for now since I um, haven't read very much of it. 
Um, I also picked up um, one called Kaiju Preservation Society. <laughs> um, so this is by John Scalzi, which if you if you know him, then you know him. He writes uh, like <laughs> kind of parody, witty science fiction type stuff. Um, the one that I found about him, the, the book of his that I found about, I found out about first was called Red Shirts, and it's a kind of a parody on Star Trek. You know, you've got these characters that wear red shirts, and in Star Trek, they, you know, if you're wearing a red shirt, you're kind of disposable. And in the book, they kind of become aware of that whole trope. So it's kind of fun. That is probably one of my favorite books by him. I, I got to see <laughs> him speak at a comic convention in Denver a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got to talk to him a little bit afterwards. And he's actually one of the guys that kind of said, if you've got an idea, run with it. And so he's one of the reasons why I enjoy were why I've been trying to uh, write my first novel. So yeah. sorry for the interjection, <laughs> but he's a really cool guy. He is. And I mean, he definitely, he definitely takes those ideas and runs with them. Um, so this one is, I think it's pretty recent. Um, I don't know exactly when it was published, but um, so there's uh, the main character works for a company called, food mood which is the like in book version of uber eats or grubhub or whatever and they get laid off from their like corporate position at the company and uh, they live in new york city and it's during the pandemic and so they can't find another job so they decide to start being a delivery driver for this company that they just got fired from and uh so they're going out uh, making deliveries and they run into this guy that they knew in school. And so they start talking, they reconnect, become friends. And the conversation comes up that like they're going to get kicked out of their apartment because COVID and all of uh, the roommates have lost their jobs. And so the, the guy that was taking these deliveries, these food deliveries, happens to live in this like really nice like million dollar condo overlooking uh i think it's overlooking central park maybe anyway um so he mentions hey you know i've got an opening on my team if you want to join because the person that is on my team is currently in the hospital on a ventilator with covid um and so she's like yeah sure i'll you know i i'm desperate like and it's, he explains it as this job that she's kind of going to be a little bit of a pack mule and just carry gear back and forth. And he tells her that uh, he works with um, large animals in like an, an environmental capacity, uh, but he can't, you know, say anything more than that. And long story short, um, she gets hired on, they go to Greenland to the secret military base and somehow or another end up working at this that's what the title says it's a, a kaiju preservation society so think like a an animal preserve but for these massive kaiju so kaiju if you don't know is like uh, the creatures like godzilla and um you know those big monsters and uh yeah that's about where i've gotten to so far <laughs> But it's it's pretty entertaining. It's well written and pretty engaging. <laughs> that sounds fun. I'm gonna have to check it out. It's yeah, it's a good one so far. Um, so I'll just hurry and hit the other ones because I feel like I talked about that for a little bit. But uh, so for watching, uh, my wife and I have been watching Moon Knight on Disney Plus, which is the latest Marvel uh, miniseries. This one's kind of cool. It's based on uh, the Egyptian gods that were in the, the Marvel comics. So, um, And then also just noting that if you haven't seen it, the teaser trailer for Thor Love and Thunder has uh, dropped. Uh, this one is directed by uh, Taika Waititi, 
the same director that did Thor Ragnarok, which is one of my top movies of all time. Definitely my top MCU. And this one looks just as good. <laughs> there's, there's a scene in the trailer where, um, cause Thor at the end of the, the last, uh, Avengers or whatever, he had kind of let himself go, you know, he was you know, getting pretty pudgy and, kind of down and depressed and one of the scenes in this one he's uh you know the the crossfit thing that you do with like the big ropes he's mm-hmm. doing that with he's doing that but with anchor chains <laughs> <laughs> and there's like this that montage it's like 80s music montage he's got a trucker hat on that's like strongest avenger or something <laughs> it's hilarious so that sounds um, well worth it yeah i'm excited for that one um, and then as far as news, news, I'm going to, um, skip this article because I think that would be fun to talk about when we actually have some time, but, um, I finished the 3d print that I was working on of the topographical, um, uh, States. I've done the, the lower 48 and I still need to do Alaska and Hawaii. And then I need to decide how to mount them and paint them and, and do all that, but. The bulk of it is done, and it's it's been interesting to see, like, you can look at it on, like, a, a screen and kind of see the, the differences and stuff, but it's a lot cooler to actually look at it in a tangible medium and be able to, like, compare, you know, like, Utah and Colorado to, like, Kansas <laughs> or even to, like, Georgia and, and uh, Tennessee. So were there any surprises with the 3D printing? Like, it's all elevation-based. Like, were there anything that you're going, oh, that looks interesting in the middle of where you never thought there would be something? <laughs> um, probably not anything that was surprising. There was a, definitely some things that were cool to see. Um, so the Grand Canyon was pretty cool um, just to see how, like, relatively narrow oh, – up the microphone to see how relatively narrow and deep it is. Um, and then, cause it looks like just this crack in the, in the landscape. Um, and then the other thing that was really cool to see was death Valley. Um, because so the, the way that the model, the way that I printed the model was, um, the layer zero. So the first layer was set at sea level. Um, and so in the whole, like, montage of all the states everything is solid and then you get to death valley and it's there's a hole like you can look through if you hold it up you can see light because i mean i knew this academically but death valley is below sea level right but it was just really cool to see that like i don't know that i feel silly saying it because like i knew it but it's just different to see like this hole right there in uh, in california so that's kind of cool all right last question about the map before <laughs> we go on to the main thing were you was it a fine enough scale that you were able to pick up like the cahokia mounds in illinois um no it was well if i knew like if i was looking specifically at it it maybe um I'd have to, uh, I still have to do the math in my head of exactly what elevation to layer height I did. I printed it at uh, 0.15 millimeters and the highest point was maybe like half an inch. So it's, it's pretty... Uh, other, you know, unless there's like a big elevation change, it's kind of hard to see. But so they went from. I just looked it up. They went from sea level, like Mississippi River, and the tallest uh, pyramid, Earth Pyramid in Cahokia, is a hundred feet tall. So probably didn't pick up, oh, or it's just yeah. like if it did, it would just be like a little drop. Yeah, yeah, probably wouldn't have wouldn't have shown up then okay. if, yeah if the tallest is like half an inch and yeah i 
it's probably um, too small to show up on the the scale that I was printing at. So I was just curious. That's one of my favorite like ancient mysteries of uh, of pre Columbian <laughs> North America. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was just like, maybe I was foreshadowing to a, to a future podcast (laughs) who knows we'll discuss it after we're done with this one (laughs) there you go um yeah so i think i'm gonna call that my news for the week so don't want to spend too much time on it but cool i'm excited to see how the map turns out once you're done painting it yeah it'll be cool to see hopefully hopefully it turns out So, as you alluded to in the intro, today we're talking about camping. How to do it, where to go, what to bring, how to be prepared, how to uh, find a spot, keep a spot, make it home safe. So, I don't know. Um, You've done a lot more camping than I have recently. I've done a lot of, like, Day trips, I have not done a lot of camping, so I don't know. Do you want to take the reins? Because you probably have a little bit more insight than I do. Sure. Um, So just a quick note, uh, this is going to be a two-part episode, like we mentioned in the intro. Um, This first one, we're going to go over everything that, that Steve just mentioned, and then in part two, which will be next week, we're going to talk about how to set up camp and then kind of everything to do while you're there. So if that's what you're looking for, I promise we'll get to it. <laughs> this episode's going to sound kind of incomplete because we're going to talk about everything leading up to it and then we're going to skip to what you do after. But we wanted to, to break it up this way just for, for time, so... Um, so first of all, um, planning your trip. So I (laughs) kind of over plan and over prepare for things a little bit just in general, but, um, I like to have a plan before I go. I find that it cuts down on stress and the more things that you're prepared for, everybody just has a better time. So the first thing um, that you need to decide is when are you going to go camping? Uh, like when during the year, uh, what time of the week, um, etc. So there's, and this discussion is going to be focused kind of on camping in North America, just because that's where we live and that's what we have experience with. So I apologize to our international listeners. I'm sure that there will be things that you can adapt uh, to your location. And a lot of things are probably fairly similar. Uh, But here in North America, in the United States, um, there's a concept of peak and off-peak season uh, as far as the camping seasons go. Uh, The peak camping season pretty much runs from Memorial Day, which is the last day in May, through Labor Day, which is the first Monday in September. Um, and it, it does, you know, flex a little bit before and after, just kind of depending on what part of the country that you live in. Um, and in general, when you're trying to decide when to go, uh, so peak season is definitely going to be busier in the summer, uh, but you're also going to have better weather and uh, also for kind of remote camping, so outside of campgrounds, a lot of those areas are closed during the off-peak season, so you don't really have a lot of choice. Um, most like official campgrounds, stuff that you can drive to, staying on on asphalt or on tarmac, they tend to have slightly longer seasons. Um, not by much; it, it really just depends on the part of the country and then also on weather and it can change from one year to the next depending on the campground. Um, So those are kind of the things that you have to decide on as far as when to go. Um, You also then have to think about, do you want to go like 
on a weekday? Do you want to go on the weekend? And a couple things there. Weekdays, obviously, you're going to have fewer people. Um, also, the people that do camp during the week tend to be more like mature groups. So like retired couples or um, couples without kids and less of like, you know, teenagers and, and families. Uh, so it'll probably be quieter. It'll be less busy, which is either a pro or a con, depending on how you look at it. Uh, weekends are going to be busier, uh, which, but that's good if you like meeting up with other campers. Um, and weekends will also have more like younger groups or more families with kids. So if you have kids and you want your kids to be able to play with other children, you know, the weekend's probably better. Um, and then also just as far as holidays go, it's worth mentioning um, the holidays, especially like long three or four day holiday weekends can be very, very crowded. Um, and another thing to keep in mind is that you are probably not competing only with traffic uh, from other campers, but also just everybody else that's traveling on that holiday. So um, it's definitely fun to get out and go camping um, for those holiday weekends, but also kind of keep that in mind. So um, how about where to go? You want to take this one? Yeah. Um, well, before I jump into the deciding on where to go, um, I can say that unless you have an inside to a campground, holiday camping, it's darn near impossible to find reservations last minute. There's, mm-hmm. it, it's To me, it's not worth it. I'd rather wait the week after because, um, like you said, it is super busy. Yes. It's also a time when a lot of people that have never camped before decide that it's a good idea to camp, and you tend <laughs> to get people there um, that are doing uh, things that are a little in the gray areas of legality. <laughs> uh, and so... It's it it's not an enjoyable experience, <laughs> um, <laughs> unless you're ready to put up with like the frat boy mentality in some situations. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, definitely. That is definitely a thing. <clears throat> so, so, um, so how do we decide where to go? Uh, there's there's three basic types of camping. Um, there's places where you take reservations. There's walk-up places uh, or dispersed places. Um, as far as reservations, almost every campsite in the United States and most of Canada, you can have reservations. These are the ones that have the bathrooms. Uh, I don't know. Would you consider like KOA or Jellystone? A reservation thing like the uh the city camping <laughs> um i can't speak to that because i've never never really done that kind of camping so <laughs> i know I some would consider it so i'll just say there's also organized like if you don't want to stay at a hotel uh campgrounds that are just outside of city centers where you can stay for usually cheaper that that's a, another reservation type of style. Um, some places uh, have kind of a first come first serve walk up type of thing. I have actually never been to one of these. Um, so I can't speak too much on them. The uh, And then dispersed camping is probably my favorite. And this is a usually in national forests or uh, land management managed forests where you are allowed to camp anywhere. Um, It has some rules that we'll go through a little bit later, but um, this one is definitely first come first serve and just find a place and go camp. Um, I will say in the United States, most camps 
you're only allowed to stay in one place for up to, I think it's 14 days before you move. And then you have to move camps or move locations or, um, park rangers, forest service employees, uh, BLM agents will come and give you citations for unauthorized camping or, uh, loitering, I guess. I don't know. What is it? I'm not sure what they actually charge you for, but yeah, it's not worth it. If you're trying to, if you're trying to get away from society, don't go to off the road camping, go way up into the mountains, be a hermit there. So, um, as far as finding campgrounds, Google maps is amazing for finding campgrounds. Um, another thing that I have done is uh, I will go camping near zip code and I'll look for blogs or travel influencers like Instagram people who have kind of been to the area and they'll give you some ideas. The only downside of actually Googling where to camp in said area code is you're doing what 90% of the people do. And so you're going to have a little bit more crowded areas. Uh, as far as that, um, reservations, um, if you're not going to an organized campground, a KOA, a Jellystone, a YMCA, uh, anything like that, um, you can go to recreation.gov, uh, which is, um, it shows national parks, department of the interior campgrounds, uh, just this last a couple of weeks ago, I went and hit a bunch of national parks over, uh, over my spring break, like did a road trip. I can say that not a lot of campgrounds are open right now, but after Memorial day, they will be. So this is going to be definitely a lot better at that time. Uh, and then a reserveamerica.com. I have actually never used this one, but, um, according to the notes, uh, most of the campgrounds managed by commercial entities use this site. So there you go. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of campgrounds that are on forest service or BLM land, but they're not directly managed by federal agencies. There's uh, actual companies that manage those. And uh, so this website has some of those. Oh, that's cool. Um, I know BLM has managed campsites as well, which are usually, they're usually better. Um, like there's better features, better hiking, better areas and BLM managed campsites. The only drawback is if you are uh, a camping, like bringing a camper, uh, not all of them have hookups. So you kind of have to rough it if you're, roughing it in an RV or that's such a thing. I don't know. Yeah. Well, uh, that's debatable. <laughs> you know, the older I get just sleeping away from my own bed is roughing it sometimes. So. <laughs> uh, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we should also probably mention that, uh, um, BLM, Bureau of Land Management. If you live east of the Mississippi, this is pretty much non-existent. Um, and if you live east of Colorado, it's pretty uh, uncommon. But in the west, it's there's a lot of land that uh, is managed by the BLM. Like a lot of it. <laughs> um, if you're curious on agencies and where they are, BLM is Department of the Interior, so it's a slightly different jurisdiction than National Forest Service, which is technically part of the uh, Department of Agriculture. Yeah. So another thing to kind of keep in mind of the uh, the Department of the Interior, they're, they're a lot more strict with what you can and can't do on their land than the Forest Service, who just wants to make sure that the trees are being maintained properly. True. Yep. <clears throat> so 
that's a little side note. If you if you <laughs> haven't if you are if you're not aware of it. So uh, common amenities uh, when you're looking for a camp. I always look at water. Um, it's important. You need it. We talked about it in our hiking. We talked about it in our winter survival. Water is important. So where do you get it? Is it in campsite, in the campground? Does it come from a spigot? Does it come from a stream? Do you need to bring a water purification thing? Is there a central place with running water in your campsite where you can go? Is that water potable? Not everything is potable, some of it. So you kind of need to know where your water is coming from. Um, so that's an important thing to look for. So, you know, what to bring and how to prepare for that. Uh, speaking of running water, uh, the, the type of toilet is kind of important. Um, we live in a society that is very hygienic compared to how it used to be. Um, so there's toilets are a thing <laughs> that you should really look for. Um, so if you are not in an RV with your own like private toilet and you're staying on an organized campground, do not expect your own private restroom. This is always shared. Uh, in my experience, it's shared with the entire campground. So you're expecting 40, 50 sites using the same shower, the same toilet stalls, the same, all of that. Um, I've been to ones that are smaller. Showers are usually site-wide. Sometimes you'll get like little, little pockets of toilet that serve like anywhere from two to 10 tent camping sites. Uh, if you're lucky, they're flush toilets. If you're not lucky, they are either porta potties or if you're really unlucky, they're the uh, classic outhouses. Um, so outhouses are a different thing in the American Southwest. We have a lot of spiders that like to hide in there. Um, so before you go, make sure you have a stick to kind of uh, take any possible spider web off of the outhouse toilet seat so you don't sit down and end up in an emergency room. Um, yeah, and lift the seat up and look underneath it because they like to hide under there. Yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, and when you do lift up the seat, don't put your fingers underneath the seat to lift. <laughs> lift, like touch the side of the wood and pull up. Um, that's another important thing. Uh, some of these outhouses were dug, gosh, I've been, I've been to some in New Mexico that were dug like over a hundred years ago. The pit was dug a hundred years ago and they will have a little bag of lime in there. After you go number two, if there's a bag of lime in there, it usually has a cup. What you do is you fill the cup with the lime and you put it over the poo. It's not, it's not environmentally nice because it, it doesn't allow the poo to break down. It kind of creates a cement, but it also blocks the bacteria from getting to the poo, blocks the smell, makes the uh, makes it less likely for flies to get in there. Flies attract the spiders. The spiders, as you know, could end your camping trip very early. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel like I have hit enough um, potty humor takes on this thing i'm gonna pass the torch back to you <laughs> um so just one other thing about the vault toilets um i it's a little bit of a i don't know pet peeve soapbox maybe i don't know. um and maybe it's just so my dad and my brother are both civil engineers and are very uh well versed shall we say <laughs> in the, the mechanics of bathroom stuff. Um, and so I think it kind of came from when I was a kid and my dad would rant about the vault toilets and specifically 
people tend to leave this the lid open um well they'll do one of two things they'll either leave the lid open or they'll prop the door open um and you would think that those would help like air out the the thing and you would be wrong <laughs> Um, so unless it's like an old, like wooden ramshackle outhouse, which you're not going to find in, in campgrounds, they're specifically designed, um, with a ventilation system that works best when the door is closed and the seat is closed. And when that happens, all of the smells and everything go out a ventilation pipe and it still doesn't smell good in there by any means, but it's not like vomit inducing. Whereas if you, somebody leaves the seat up and you know, the, the hot sun is baking on there, all of that smell is just going to fill that, that little outhouse. And, uh, you walk in and the skin starts melting off your face. So close the seat. (laughs) Speaking of smell and baking, if you are a smoker, don't smoke in a vault outhouse and don't throw a lit match or a cigarette butt down those things because there is the possibility for buildup of methane gas mm-hmm. and you could cause a uh, a little bit of an incident <laughs> have a crappy time uh, just a bit yeah anyway <clears throat> um <laughs> we should probably move on from that so Ah, we could do an entire poo episode, but yeah, <laughs> I'm sure we could. Um, <laughs> so really quickly, I'll just jump in on the, uh, the trailer and RV hookups. Um, I know that you haven't had much opportunity, uh, to work with these. I, um, also have never owned a trailer, but I have gone with friends. I've gone with family that had them. Um, I've also gone with people that, had money and bought a trailer, but didn't take the time to learn how, how it works or how to pull it or park it. So, um, I have a little bit of experience more than I would care to. So I'll just hit a few things really quickly. Um, so this is, this is still, we're still talking about campground amenities. Um, and one thing that you can look for specifically is, um, trailer or RV hookups. And so, the way this works is you have a campsite that you pull your trailer into and you have little like utility hookups. It could be water, it could be sewer, it could be electricity or any combination of the three. Um, I would say water and electricity are the most common. Uh, you don't usually get sewer hookups unless you're in like a KOA or some type of RV park that is also connected to the city sewer. Um, but anyway, so those are the possibilities that you can look for. Um, if you don't have a sewer hookup, just be careful how much water you let down the drain. Um, otherwise your, your tanks will fill up pretty fast. Um, trailers and RVs generally have three tanks. There's a, a water tank, and then what they call gray and black. Uh, so the the water, the gray, and the black tank are, well, the water tank's self-explanatory. The gray water is generally, if you have like a kitchen sink in the trailer or a bathroom sink uh, and even a shower, those all go into the gray water tank. And the black tank is what the toilet goes into. Um, the black tank is usually pretty small. Um small enough that when I've gone camping with people with a trailer and we're there for more than like three nights, um, the, uh, the people who are anatomically able to pee outside, it's very beneficial to have them do that. It stops your black tank from filling up. Uh, but the important thing is you never want to mix connectors or adapters between the three. Um, bacteria are super tiny. It just takes a couple cells to, um, contaminate your, your water tank. And then you've, it is costly and very time consuming to fix. Um, some campgrounds and most large RV parks will also require you 
um, when you're hooking up to have something called a backflow preventer valve. And this is just something um, because your trailer and your RV have water pumps, and this is to prevent you from pumping water from your trailer back into the the city or the, the campground potable water system. So just get one of those. They're super cheap, like 10 bucks. Throw it in your trailer in case you need it. Um, and then just a couple things to hit on the electrical hookups. Um, so the electrical system in your trailer is uh, you generally have 12 volt and 120 volt. Um, this is sometimes called 110, but it's actually 120 volt with modern code. Um, you usually have some combination of both. Um, the lights and fan and other things are usually 12. And then you usually have like some AC outlets in the RV walls and like a, a stove um, that runs on 120. Uh, your fridge is usually a combination of 12 volt and propane. Um, and then the electrical hookups at the campground are usually, they usually run 240 volt at 50 amps. Um, and then that gets stepped down by your trailer or RV. Um, some larger RVs do actually make use of that 240 volt connection. It's typically ones that have a, an AC unit built in. And then some like really high end luxury ones actually have like a washer dryer inside and a bunch of other stuff that can use the 240. So um, in the U.S., it's impossible to mix these up because the connectors are completely different. Um, but just, you know, be safe. Uh, if you are new to this, walk over to the next site. My experience has been that RV owners are more than happy to, uh, you know, help out, offer advice, things like that. So just don't electrocute yourself, please. <laughs> there you go. So I think that's pretty much it for the reservation sites, right? Yeah. Uh, next up is walk-up sites. Um, as I've said, I I usually go to reserve or I do dispersed. So I do not. I don't do the walk-up sites. How about I talk uh, talk about these and you talk about dispersed then? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so hopefully people aren't getting tired of my voice, but if they are too bad, um, so walk-up sites are, they're in a campground, um, but it's not one that you can reserve online. Um, usually this is because there's not a permanent camp host, um, that's there to, you know, make sure reservations get, um, set out and stuff. Um, but in a walk-up site, you it's other than that, it's a standard campground. I mean, you go up, you've got like a road, the road loops around, there's campsites that branch off. Um, the difference there is it's all self-managed. It's all kind of on the honor system. They do have rangers and, and hosts that come through and like spot check things. So, I mean, just don't be a douche. Don't try and stay in one without paying. But if you do, just know that you'll probably get caught. <laughs> uh, the way it works is you go up to the campsite, you drive around, um, you find a campsite that you want, you park your car there or like, you know, set up a, a chair or something to mark your spot. And then you go back to near the entrance where they have like a, a little bulletin board with some information and, there's a little lockbox with some envelopes. You take the envelope, you put the cash inside for whatever the fee is. Uh, Walk-up sites are usually a lot cheaper, so it's usually like ten bucks. Um, then you write your information on the envelope. Uh, usually wants like a name and a, a phone number, email address, and a usually a license plate number for your vehicle, and then a portion of that envelope is perforated and you tear that off and uh, the envelope and the tag have a pre-filled number, like a, a serial number, I guess. You seal the envelope with the money in it. You stick it in a, a steel lockbox. You take the tag back with you. And depending on the campground, you either stick it on the dash of your car or you hang it from the rear view mirror. 
Um, that's how they work. As far as getting a good site, um, I can tell you that Friday evening is pretty much the worst time to go because that's when everybody that uh, forgot to plan a camping trip and just kind of went spur of the moment. That's when they're all getting there Friday evening, Friday night. And then you're the asshole driving around at like two in the morning with your headlights, lighting up everybody's tents, um, looking for a site. Um, so try and go earlier on Friday afternoon or, um, what I like to do is try and go, if you can take Friday off, try to arrive Thursday by like 4 PM, uh, because then you avoid traffic as well as that rush to find a campsite on Friday night. Um, and then one other thing, if you're, you know, you're heading up, uh, the Canyon for a camping trip last minute, whatever, uh, you don't find one on Friday night, try going back late Saturday morning. Um, there's a lot of people that will go and either they don't like the campsite that they got or something comes up, but for whatever reason they will leave, uh, leave early. And so that frees up the site. And, um, even though, you know, they've paid for it, they can't, you know, they can't get it back. You know, if you have to leave, you have to leave. And the general rule is if there is no vehicle and no gear there, um, it's, it's safe to take it. So that's a, that's an option kind of last resort if you need to. So cool. How about dispersed? All right. Dispersed camping, uh, both the agencies that I talked about before, the National Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management. Again, this is more of a United States thing. Um, I haven't heard of a lot of dispersed camping or boondocking in, um, in Europe. I could be wrong, but I feel like this is more of a North America thing just because of our uh, public land use rules. But anyway... It's anywhere, it's camping anywhere where there's not a designated site. Um, this can be achieved through taking your car or your camper to a national land and pulling off into a pull-off, camping off the side of the road. A lot of um, the agencies each have their own, sorry, excuse me, have their own separate rules on um, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. Um, a lot of them have, you have to set up your camp tents or whatnot, a certain, a certain amount of distance off the main road, um, which kind of limits the on the road dangers of, uh, people going way too fast on small logging roads. Um, so as far as rules, uh, Bureau of Land Management, they allow dispersed camping uh, 14 days out of 28-day periods, and it does not have to be continuous. Uh, basically what it is, you can go set up your camp, set up your camper, set up whatever it is, and from the point that you set it up, you it can only be occupied... 14 days per 28 days after those 14 days are up you have to move up to 25 miles away um you cannot leave as i said you can set it up and leave but you can't leave it unattended on blm land for more than 10 days in the lower 48 if you're up in alaska uh they do things different up there that really is like the last wild frontier you can leave it up to 12 months but they will theoretically check and make sure that you're moving at least 25 miles away from a previous camp spot after every 14 days of occupation. As far as the forest service, it's, um, it's a similar thing. They depend more on logging roads and whatnot. As I mentioned before, they're part of the agriculture department. And so they look at the national forests as a little bit less of public land and a little bit more of 
cropland. So they're going to look at it as a don't harm our trees because our trees will be used to make paper products, furniture, logging contracts, make us money type of thing. So they're a little bit more lenient on how far off you go uh, when you do it. So you're allowed to stay on national forest land for 16 days per 30 day cycle. Um, again, you can leave your stuff. I'm not sure. I didn't look up um, the uh, the unattended campground rules for yeah, the Forest I tried Service. To find it. I couldn't find it for the Forest I know, Service. I know here in Colorado, the Arapaho National Forest. I think it's uh, it's ten days, like the BLM. But the Pike National Forest, I think, is an eight day unattended rule. So I, I, I'm not sure it might just be different from forest to forest. So best still, if you're doing the dispersed thing, look up the guides, look up the uh, information and um, just double check because each forest might be slightly different. I'm not sure. Um, the other way to get to dispersed other than driving um, is to actually do some backpacking. And this is actually my favorite thing. It's not for a novice by any chance, like standard, but that's where you put everything you own or everything you're taking on the trip onto a backpack and you go three, four, five miles off the road and set up camp. It's also, if you enjoy the beauty of nature without being surrounded by people. It's definitely worth it for that. Um, and we'll kind of get into how to set up a camp out there once we go there. Um, so that is dispersed camping. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Was there anything else you wanted to add or? Um, no, I don't think so. That was it. Okay. Um, so Big things for dispersed camping. It's not a managed campground, which means the rangers, the camp attendants, the host family, they don't offer a trash service. They don't offer, um, they don't offer water. They don't offer like vending machines, showers, anything like that because they do not exist. And so whatever you bring, camp it out or Whatever you bring to camp, pack it out. There's nothing worse than going to like national forest land and seeing like the, the trash and junk and destruction that uh, that people leave in their wake. So, yeah. So, oh. Darn it. I keep getting the poo topics. Uh, when you're dispersed camping, there's no outhouse. There's no toilets. There's nothing like that. Make sure you check the website to make sure that you're, you're following the guidelines on how to dispose of your waste. Um, if you, most of them, you don't have to pack out your urine. Just, Try not to go in the same place every single time you use the restroom for number one. As far as poo, some of these uh, environments that you're going to, especially if they're Bureau of Land Management, there's something that the Department of Interior is trying to protect. And so, like, they might have regulations on bringing a luggable loo or some other device to pack out your crap make sure you follow the regulations because like ultimately we do want to protect these resources so that future generations can go and experience them too so i'll get off my high horse now <laughs> okay so uh, this is going a little bit long might be a three-parter after all <laughs> it is <laughs> So that brings us to the end of the, the, the meat and potatoes, which ended up being like a 10 course meal. It feels like, 
Um, so we're going to end today's episode with our mindfulness uh, moment. And uh, this one is a little bit interesting. Um, while I was at work today, I I tend to take walks during my lunch. It, it gets me outside of the office. It gives me a chance to like clear my mind. It gives me a chance to be outside, be in nature. And I really enjoy it. And I try to, I aim for about two miles or so. Um, I feel like that's a good, good walking amount for, for a 30 minute lunch period. But as I was walking around today, there was a PE class that came out to, uh, run a mile, uh, and get it timed for PE so that they could get their grade. Um, and I noticed as these kids were running, um, that there were basically four types of people in the world, uh, or in this class. And it kind of made me go, Oh, that, this is kind of true to the world too. Right. So the very first type of person that I saw this, this is somebody that's super competitive. They, they had to be first, but they, they also had to follow the rules. They had to make sure that it was fair for everybody that they were first. So they ran all four laps around the track and they ran the entire time to be first. Um, the second type of person that I saw, uh, these were the, the type of people that to me, it looked like, I know I can run. I know I have the capability. I could probably do relatively well, but while the teacher isn't looking, yeah, I'm going to cut across the, the football field and end up on the other side and cut off a couple yards, a couple 50, 60 meters here, 50, 60 meters there, or the ones that would run while the teacher was watching them. And then as soon as the teacher turned their back would walk. Uh, so I'm counting these two as the capable yet the ones that will look for ways out of the work. Um, then there's a, a third type of person that I notice, And these are the ones that, that don't believe in themselves. They, they, they don't think that they're capable of doing it, but they're not, going to break the rules. Uh, so they're going to do the full, the full four laps, but they, they were the ones that were like, kind of like jog walking, not sure of their ability, not, not sure how much their body could do. And then there was the fourth type of person that I noticed. And these were the ones that just did not care. Just, they, they came into class they walked a lap, they would cut across the middle of the field when the teacher wasn't looking, or they would just sit in the grass and watch people run. Um, and so as I was sitting there and I was thinking, watching this class, I was going, you know, this totally feels like, kind of like life. Like we've all met every type of these, every type of person that I had seen in this high school athletics class. And it got me thinking, like, where am I? What person am I? Am I the competitive rule follower? Am I the competitive person that looks for shortcuts? Like, where am I? So so the question, the mindfulness question, is completely rhetorical. I don't expect uh, my co-host to answer. I won't answer for myself. Which one of these people are you? And if you don't like who you are now... Who do you want to be? That's a, that's an interesting question. It uh, it's kind of cool how you were able to just turn this like, oh, I'm just out walking, um, observing, turn it into like a a philosophical thought experiment. It's, <laughs> um, it kind of reminds me of the, the whole argument. If you, if you're expected to do something or wait, I, I might be misquoting this. If you are forced to do something that you want to do anyway, 
Like, what are the moral implications of that? It feels really similar to me. Yeah. It's just kind of interesting to think about. I don't know. It, it was interesting. I had a lot of fun thinking about it while I did my did my walk today. I only made it a mile and three quarters because, man, I cannot do heat. But that's a, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I can empathize with that. Yeah, heat sucks. So, well, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you all enjoyed. I hope you all got something out of it. Even the experienced campers, I hopefully we, we give you a little bit of information that you possibly didn't know and can use in the future. If you enjoyed it, join us next week as we look at how to set up camp, what type of activities to do, how to camp with kids, animals, or plan your adult trip. So join us next week. We'll see you then.